Welcome to the Mathe Taste Bible Podcast. I'm Ian Pittman, Minister of Education at Kokomo Baptist Church. Each week, my Sunday school class and I engage in a verse-by-verse study of the Bible, one book at a time, in order to better understand the doctrines of Scripture and the lifestyle they require. I invite you to join us now as we consider the Scriptures together. We're going to continue. Y'all, we're going to make a milestone. We're going to finish chapter one this morning. I am determined. Uh, All 24 verses of it. So uh, maybe. (laughs) Um, But I want to go ahead and pick up in verse 11. We're going to read 11 through 17. We covered some of this last week, but I want to read it so we can kind of get our context back and and then move forward. All right, so beginning then in verse 11. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin, for I did not receive it from a human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I could preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. So, uh, we talked again about verses 11 to 15 last week, so I'm not going to say much else about those. I'll just give you sort of three reminders of of what we came up with from there. So first of all, Paul's primary concerns are that his apostleship is from God. We'll remember that they're out here claiming and and trying to assert that um, Paul really doesn't have any right to be preaching the message that he's preaching. He doesn't have uh, the validity or the validation, rather, of the apostles in Jerusalem, or he's gone to Jerusalem, and he didn't actually receive a revelation from the Lord. So you have one or the other um, going on. Um, So he's saying, my apostleship is from God. The gospel that I'm preaching is from God. And we have to remember, I've said it before, this is something that will come back over and over again in Galatians. God is not contingent upon man's feeble mind. It doesn't matter what we understand about him. It doesn't matter what we think about him. God is who he is. Regardless, right? But we are contingent upon God's sovereign grace. It is only through Him, through His grace, His love, and His mercy that we are able uh, to be saved. So God, God is not what we think. We are exactly what God thinks, right? Um, secondly, Paul is probably the least likely person to be set aside for this task. Um, certainly, we talked about he's got political power, he's got financial power, he's got religious power because of who he is, but as he tells us, he is zealous for the traditions of his ancestors, he's a Pharisee, a Pharisee's Pharisee, he's the best of the best, he's kept all 613 of the Jewish laws at one time, he is as good as it gets when it comes to being a Jew. But all of that is for nothing, he says, because it's not for Christ. So, um, He is the least likely person. Again, he was there at the stoning of Stephen, probably was the guy with the papers in his hand. And then thirdly, God's grace is not limited by our human qualifications or lack thereof. 
God uses whomever he wishes by whatever means he wishes, in whatever ways he wishes, at whatever time he wishes, in accordance with his sovereign plan from eternity past. We don't catch God by surprise. Nothing that we do is outside of God's plan or God's will for us, right? It is his plan, and it is his sovereign plan. And I have this, or I, I hate this, and I run across this sometimes, um, just talking to people in various places, but they'll often talk about what went wrong in the garden, talking about the Garden of Eden. From our perspective, yeah, what went wrong in the garden, but from God's perspective, it was always the Garden of Gethsemane, not the Garden of Eden, right? Jesus was always the plan from the beginning. Um, Paul sees this even in his own life, that what God is doing through him and with him and by him is a part of this bigger sovereign plan. Um, Paul has a very, very high view of God's engagement with his creation. Um, we ought to. We often don't. Um, but again, when we think about the way that God interacts and the plan that God has set before us, it shouldn't come as any surprise when things happen because that's the way God set it and that's the way it's going to be. Um, so where I actually want to pick up this morning in terms of our own study is with, with verse 16. So we, we did talk a little bit about verse 16 last week, but I kind of want to fill in some blanks because I was, uh, my notes were a little more minimal on that part. <laughs> um, so I want to uh, cover some tracks there. So um, he says in verse 16 that Paul was, or that God was pleased to reveal his son in me. So Paul sees himself not merely as an agent of the gospel, but also as a prototype of the gospel. Um, the power that God displayed in Paul's transformation is the same or is directly related to the power. This is not working for me. We're going to try this. Um, the power that, God, uh, that Paul sees in God's salvation is the power that he sees enacted in his own transformation. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, so for Paul, it's not just to be what he says. It's not just what he says that expresses the truth of the gospel, but it's actually what Paul is. Um, now, we'll clear some of this up when we get to chapter 2, but Paul is convinced over and over again that he is a manifestation in whatever way of the gospel itself. Throughout this letter, too, we'll notice that Paul repeatedly refers to Christ as God's Son. This happens over and over again. It's the only letter where he's this dogmatic and this committed to referring to Jesus as God's Son. Um, and, you know, some scholars suggest that Paul is calling Jesus' divinity into question, which I think is the stupidest argument, but anyway, they're out here making it. Um, that he's calling Jesus' divinity into question. But we said this at the beginning, and I want to remind us that Paul actually has a very high view of Jesus and Jesus' position in the Godhead um, and, and Jesus' divinity. So actually, by using that phrase, son, he'll use it the same way in Romans and in Colossians. He's linking Jesus to the gospel and to the Godhead. So here we are again back at this sovereign grace. God was active in the redemption plan. God was the redemption plan, right? Um, and Paul, again, has embodied that. Um, as we move through verse 16, then we encounter these references again to his divinely appointed apostleship. Uh, it seems like we've been beating this sort of this drum endlessly now. Um, but 
for Paul, it's incredibly important that these Galatians understand that he is who he says that he is. And the gospel is the gospel that he says that it is. Uh, and so what we see is he's not focusing on the personal effects of that apostleship. He doesn't say, because I'm, a, I'm an apostle, I can do these miracles. And because I'm an apostle, I can do this and that and the other. Um, but he focuses on the nature of God's call. God has called him to preach among the Gentiles. So um, one of my favorite uh, theologians, biblical scholars, Tom Schreiner, he's at uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and this is the way that he says it, and I think it's, it's helpful. He says, concentrating on the Gentiles never meant for Paul the exclusion of the Jews. Indeed, as Roman 11, Romans 11 indicates, Paul believed the two missions were interrelated. The proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles is bound up with Paul's understanding of the gospel, and in particular the truth that the, the Gentiles were not required to observe the law in order to be saved. Paul sees in his own transformation that Jesus required nothing of him. He's riding down this road to Damascus. He's headed to persecute Christians. The Lord knocks him flat of his back off of his horse. And in that moment, Paul is transformed because he recognizes, he answers his own question. He says, who are you, Lord? If you go back and you look at that in Acts chapter 9, who are you, Lord? Okay, well, you know. Uh, so he sees that Jesus doesn't require anything of him because he is the least likely person to be here. Now, he happens to have been a Pharisee. He happens to have been a very good Jew, but that didn't figure in to what Jesus was doing through him. Um, and so what Paul does then, after he sees Jesus on the Damascus Road, is not to go find the other apostles. Now, many of us are, are tempted to do that, you know, when we feel called to do something. I mean, I'm guilty of it. Uh, even with jobs and things of that nature, you know, what do we do? We go to the people that, that know, and we go to our families, and we say, what do you think about me doing this? Do you think I'm up to it? You think I'm qualified for it? I'm reminded of what Uncle Lawrence said to you uh, when you told him you were going to preach. Uh, it's, 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 it's that same kind of, you know, we go to those people and we expect reactions. We don't always expect the reaction we get, but we go for advice and we go for confirmation and affirmation, right? Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't need that, right? Um, Paul instead goes elsewhere. Um, and we'll talk about um, that in a minute. But his gospel is given by God in the unveiling of the risen Jesus. This is not something he learned secondhand from others. Now that's not to say, and I said it last week, and I'll, I'll say it again now, it's not to say that Paul didn't hear the gospel. It's not to say that Paul didn't hear the gospel proclaimed. He was at the stoning of Stephen. What does Stephen do? He preaches. Um, and he tells us how Jesus figures in from the beginning of the Bible all the way through. Uh, so it's not that Paul hasn't heard it, but what he goes, what he proclaims, and what he preaches is not that, but it's what he received from the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. <clears throat> the false teachers in Galatia have questioned the legitimacy of his apostleship, but Paul knows from the beginning without any outside confirmation, without anybody saying, yes, I think that's what you ought to do, or no, you ought not to do that, whichever way. But he knows without any of that that he's been called to serve as an apostle. 
we should all be that confident in what God has called us to do. Um, one of the things, one of the problems that the church faces, I'm getting on a rabbit, I know, but one of the problems that the church faces is because of the culture we live in, we're scared to live out our faith. We're scared to live out what we're called to do. Um, and we look for reasons why we shouldn't or why we can't. But Paul says, no, you've been called by Jesus. You don't need anybody else's approval. Go out there and do it. If they like it, good. If they don't, oh well. You know. And we'll see when he comes to his second visit to Jerusalem, they don't like what he's doing. Peter particularly doesn't like what he's doing. Does Paul care? No. Paul tells him he's wrong. Um, one of my, kind of my favorite interactions between the apostles because we forget they're human, right? Um, but I'm getting ahead. So verse 17, Paul specifically says, I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. He didn't need to talk to them. He didn't need their affirmation. He didn't need... Uh, them to tell him what he ought to go out and preach now that he is an apostle. He needed to talk to God. So he receives his gospel by revelation of Jesus Christ and he doesn't need anything else to confirm its truth. So just as God's plan is not contingent about what we think about, contingent upon what we think about it, our salvation isn't contingent upon what anybody else thinks about it either. Right? That's between you and God. You know there doesn't need to be an external sign for everybody else. There doesn't need to be anything except a prayer and an, uh, uh, um, uh, an indication or, that's not the right word, a commitment to faith in Jesus. That's the word that I want. Right. That's right. That's right. And you know, he'll do it in weird ways. Um, we, we were having a conversation the other night, uh, me and the preacher and Kevin, about uh, the demise of hell's fire and brimstone preaching. You know, people don't preach hell anymore. And one of the reasons is because it scares people. And the argument is you don't want to scare people into hell. Or you don't want to scare people into heaven, rather. You don't want to scare them into hell either. But um, that's right. I mean, I'd rather scare them into heaven. But I also think that that, you know, we have done people a disservice if we don't let them know what's on the other side. And I mean, if you think you're going to die and just sleep forever, that's not too bad, you know. But if you think you're going to die and burn forever, that's something else. Say that again. It ain't over. That's it. It ain't over. Right, right. So what Paul sees in his own transformation, what Paul sees in the gospel that he's been given by Christ is this is God's power at work. This is not man's power. This is not anything that man can say or do. This is all entirely God's power. So if he doesn't go to Jerusalem, where does he go? Well, Arabia, naturally. Uh, wouldn't we all go to Arabia? <laughs> um, no, we wouldn't, but it's not uncommon. This, this is a practice of Jesus according to uh, Luke chapter 5, and I seem to have left that slide out, so we'll just uh, talk about it. But it's Luke chapter 5, I think verse 16, if my memory is correct. Um, Jesus regularly goes into the wilderness to pray. You know, after he's had enough of uh, all of these people coming up, and wanting to see him and talk to him and watch him and do it. I mean, you know, again, we forget Jesus is human. Jesus got tired. 
Jesus got tired of dealing with people. He did it graciously and lovingly, but, you know, he needed a break sometimes. And the way that he would take his breaks as he goes, then he prays. You know, imagine if we prayed every time we took a break. We'd be in a much better shape. Um, but what Paul is doing when he goes to Arabia, this is, not an, this is not an early evangelistic mission. We don't have any indication that this is um, Paul going out here and trying to convert the Arabians or, or whatever the case may be. Um, he goes to do business with God. So despite what these false teachers in Galatia are telling he doesn't go to Jerusalem to get a Peter's Club membership card, right? Uh, he goes to Arabia to do business with God, and he comes back to do business for God. There's this fascinating correlation here I want to spend a little bit of time with, um, if, if y'all will humor me just a minute. Uh, we're going to kick it back to the Old Testament for a minute, uh, because I want to go to 1 Kings chapter 19. Now, y'all don't have to turn there, but uh, just bear with me. Um, so this is Ahab and Jezebel have threatened Elijah after the slaughter of the prophets of Baal. Um, so he runs to Horeb. Horeb is Mount Sinai. Where is Mount Sinai? In Arabia. Okay, so keep that. Uh, Mount Sinai is the place of the covenant between God and the people of Israel. So he's tired and he's depressed and he's ready to give it up because he can't understand why everything that he's done has gone horribly wrong. And just as a side note, this is my favorite thing because the angel takes him food and takes him water and tells him to take a nap. <laughs> Everybody needs to rest and it's okay. Um, but think about the language that's used here in 1 Kings 19 verse 10. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they are looking for me to take my life. Well, Paul says in Galatians 1, verse 14, I was extremely zealous. Now, the, the Greek is just a little bit different, but the idea behind the Greek is the same. They are fully committed. They are fully immersed in these traditions and in keeping these traditions alive. So Paul says, I was, very, I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors, right? Um, you know, again, in verse 14... I've been very zealous for the Lord God of armies. So he says it again. Um, Elijah is characterized by this, Elijah the prophet. It was interesting you brought up Elijah last week, and then this kind of came this week. So what does God tell Elijah to do? Go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. Paul and Elijah are doing this, this kind of pass and repass kind of thing here. And what is his new task? To anoint Hazael as king over Aram, and also to anoint a prophet, a new prophet. Paul has been very zealous. He's been confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. He goes off to Arabia, presumably at least in symbolism, off to Mount Sinai, uh, to do business with God. He gets there, he does business with God, and God sends Paul back to Damascus with a new message of a newly anointed king, Jesus, the Messiah. So, you know, here we go again with this sovereign plan business, but Paul is showing how even through his own transformation, Scripture has been coming to new fulfillment in and through him. Um, he's also putting himself in line, and we miss this, I think, because we're not as Old Testament uh, 
attached, maybe. But Paul is putting himself in company with the prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, we have Elijah here. Later we're going to see him talking about Isaiah. He's going to be using the same language that Isaiah does about himself. So when we think about Isaiah, we think of the suffering servant songs, and we think of them being applied to Jesus. But Paul uses them as applied to himself. All right. So kind of what he's saying here is if anyone is being disloyal to Israel's God and his covenant purposes, it's certainly not me. Because those who are turning their backs on the grace of God's call are the disloyal ones. But I, Paul, am embodying these very traditions in a whole new way. And it's this way that God has been preparing all along. All right? Um, so we'll move then into verses 18 to 24. What am I doing? All right. Uh, <clears throat> then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, and I stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I declare in, in the sight of God, I am not lying in what I write to you. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I remain personally unknown to the Judean churches that are in Christ. They simply kept hearing, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. So Paul continues to emphasize that his commission to preach and teach the gospel and his understanding of that gospel comes from Jesus himself and not from the Jerusalem apostles, so much so that he says, I waited three years before I even went. And when he goes, he only spends two weeks with Peter, and he meets James, but that's all that happens. So that Greek word there, um, to get to know, we have translated to get to know Cephas, or Peter, um, it actually means that he went to hear Peter's stories. That's the way that translates. So he spends two weeks with Peter. He meets James, but he learns Peter's stories. Now, learning stories and being instructed in the gospel are two very different things. Um, I might say that that's the danger that the church has run into when we say things about the Bible story of so-and-so. You know, tell me the story of Jonah. No, tell me the truth of Jonah, right? Instruct me about Jonah. Um, anyway, y'all know how I feel about that. I'll move on. Uh, that's not to say that what Peter is, or what Paul is doing in, in hearing these stories is not learning about Jesus. Certainly he is. He's learning about Jesus' character. He's learning about Jesus' ministry and, and all of that. But Peter isn't giving him the gospel message he's supposed to go and preach. Paul doesn't need affirmation of that. He says, I got that from the risen Lord. Um, so I like what C.H. Dodd says on this. Um, he's an excellent Bible commentator. And he says, at that time he stayed with Peter for a fortnight, and we may presume they did not spend all the time talking about the weather. <laughs> uh, they did, I'm sure, talk about Jesus. They did talk about each other. They talked about how they came to the faith that they now share um, and how Jesus worked in them and how Jesus has worked through the apostles, I'm sure, and now how he's working through Paul, because there's things to know on both sides. If Paul has been converted and been out here doing apostle things for three years, but he's never met Peter, then Peter's going to want to know, well, what have you been up to out there? 
then Paul, you know, in some sense gets to say, well, I've been out here talking to the Gentiles. You know, you've been here with the Jews. I've been talking to the Gentiles. We are fulfilling the Great Commission, the two of us, you know. Um, but Paul emphasizes the three years between his conversion and then this 15-day meeting. I mean, you think about that. That's a short time in relationship to one another, right? Um, again, he's not relying on Peter to teach him anything. He's not relying on Peter the apostle to teach him the gospel that was given to him by Jesus because Paul also saw Jesus. Um, so Paul sees this as a meeting between equals. This is not a rabbi and a student. Remember, Paul's been the student for the rabbi, and he's probably also been the rabbi with the students because he was so good. Uh, so he doesn't see this as a meeting between, or as a relationship between a rabbi and a student. It's a meeting between equals. And we see that particularly in what I think is kind of the ironic part of this passage. James gets a real pass here. He just says, I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. He didn't tell us what they did. How long did he see him? How long was he there? None of that. Um, but it's ironic because James actually becomes the central anchor of the early church. All the other apostles go out and are doing their mission work and they're doing their evangelism and all of that. James stays in Jerusalem and he anchors the church there. Um, but Paul just sort of, yeah, I met him too. <laughs> um, so when we get to verse 20 then, Paul makes this solemn oath that he's telling the truth. Now, if we read this account in Acts chapter 9, uh, we will see that, that there's a bit more happening than, than what Paul reveals in Galatians. Not because he's hiding anything, but he just doesn't put it all in there. Um, clearly, he's better known to the Jesus crowd than he lets on in Galatians. So this is when, when Paul arrives in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. His engagement with these non-Jesus-believing Jews goes so badly that they decide to send him home before he gets killed. <laughs> or at least gets into more trouble. Paul doesn't tell us that in Galatians. <laughs> he just says, I was there two weeks, I met Peter, you know, talked to him, met James, went about my business. Um, but we can assume that he did meet other believers, but Peter and James are the only leaders he met. These are the only real apostles that he meets. Uh, because, again, his commission and his calling is independent of what's going on in Jerusalem. But he's not operating without them. He's operating with them, right? So when we get to verses 21 and 22, we get something of a disappointment for us as human readers because Paul's only indication about the next decade of his life is that he went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Uh, Syria and Cilicia were actually one region. They didn't split until AD 72, and this is about 30 years before that, 30, 40 years. Um, so he, he goes to this area that's his home territory, you remember? Uh, and the next time we can find Paul is in Acts chapter 11, and that's when Barnabas finds him in Tarsus and persuades him to minister in Syria and Antioch with him. 
Um, what Paul does tell us is that he remained unknown to the assemblies in Christ in Judea. Um, so again, this gospel is independent. He doesn't go, he's not doing his ministry in Judea. He's doing his ministry among the Gentiles. And so verses 23 and 24 we learn that on the streets and among the other apostles, all they know of Paul is the remarkable truth that this guy who has been persecuting them, who has been trying to kill them, who has been trying to destroy them, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So he's made this radical change. He's done this 180. Now, now the Greek here is really clunky because it actually reads announcing the good news of the faith that he once tried to destroy. Um, but you remember a couple of weeks ago I told you to keep track of, or it might be a fun thing, to keep track of how many times gospel appears and how many times grace appears throughout the letter of Galatians, right? Um, so you can add that to your list. The Greek word for announcing the good news or preaching the faith is a word that means gospeling. So he's gospeling the gospel. Now he's already told us he was gospeling the gospel before, <laughs> earlier in chapter 1, and now that's what others are saying about him, that he's out here gospeling the gospel. So the, the churches in Judea function as witnesses to the transformation that has happened in Paul. They don't know him personally, but they know that reputation. That's, you know, your reputation precedes you, right? Your reputation is there before you walk in the room. For Paul, or for Saul, as they probably still understood him, that reputation wasn't good. But now they know about this transformation. Now they know about who he's turned into. And so they're kind of confused. But then he says, and they praise and they glorify God because of me. Now we have a restatement of Old Testament ideas here, but this time we have it from Isaiah chapter 49, uh, verse 3. Uh, this is again one of those servant songs. You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. He's pulling that out of the Septuagint and kind of putting it here on top of himself, saying, they glorified God because of me, in whom God is glorified. Um, so we have his allusions to the prophets in verses 15 to 17, that he was set apart in his mother's womb according to the plan of God. We have that Elijah-like thing where he goes to Sinai, communes with God, and God sends him back to Damascus, and he proclaims this new king. Um, and now we have his invocation of Isaiah, and he's putting this language about Israel on top of himself. So he's putting himself firmly in the map of Israel's tradition and Israel's heritage. He's saying, all this stuff that you're saying about me, you know, taking and, and forgetting all of this, abandoning it, whatever, that's not true. I am operating in the vein of the prophets. I'm operating in the vein of Elijah. I'm operating in the vein of the Messiah who was prophesied in Isaiah. Um, so, you know, the, those references to Isaiah and the servant songs probably strike us as strange because we're used to those being in reference to Christ. That's what I said earlier. But Paul sees his own call. He sees his commission. He sees his labors in terms of being the Messiah's slave on the one hand. If you go back to and look at uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, I, Paul, that word is, we have it translated as bondservant, it really means slave. Um, so he sees himself as Messiah, the Messiah's slave on the one hand and his ambassador on the other. 
So the servant work of Jesus is flowing into the servant work of the people whom he has called, into the servant work of the apostle. Um, again, I say, if the church, big church, capital C, took what we do as seriously and we understood that Christ's suffering, his death, his resurrection, that power is what's flowing through the work that we're called to do and what we ought to be doing. If we took it and understood it that way, I think we'd be less scared about the future of the church, particularly in this country. Um, but we don't. We just kind of see the church as somewhere to go on Sunday and people that we love to see and love to talk to and, you know, we might like to hear the guy giving the sermon because he's funny or whatever. Uh, we might like to hear the, the piano player and the organist whenever the piano player screws up, nobody knows what he's doing. Um, but, uh, we might like that good time, but I think we've missed the point of what we're doing, and Paul gets the point. It's that we're embodying and we're living through and working with what Jesus has done. So he believes that the living Jesus is his Lord. Jesus is in charge of everything that Paul is called to do. And Jesus is present and active by his spirit in that work. So it, it, Jesus is, is all over this. You don't get to leave Jesus at the door while you go to do your thing. For Paul, if you don't take Jesus with you, you're not doing anything. All right, all right questions or comments? Thank <laughs> you.